I'm Andrea Lopez Villafania. I'm Andrew Keats. I'm Scott Lewis. We host the Voice of San Diego podcast, the most popular public affairs podcast in San Diego. Every Friday, we break down the news we think you should know in San Diego. Things like housing, homelessness, education, election, political drama, the big stories that dominate the news, and the ones that slip under the radar. We also interview local lawmakers, policy experts, and other investigative journalists. The Voice of San Diego podcast, every Friday. Subscribe now, wherever you listen. From Sose Wheel in San Diego, welcome to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast, bringing you true stories from the live monthly showcases we produce throughout Southern California. We took a little break over the holidays because we had live shows to focus on, and Southwest Airlines stranded our program director, and families were knocking at the door, yada, yada, yada. But we are back here in January with some exciting news. Our first ever Los Angeles Vamp Storytelling Showcase happened on Thursday, January 19th at Bar Lubitsch in West Hollywood, featuring seven totally brand new stories from Angelinos on the theme of Midnight Strikes. I was so stoked to see my co-founder Jake Arkey hosting the evening. It brought me back to the days of our youth when So Say Whale was a starting out entrepreneurial artistic venture. We were so excited to see San Diegans who made the hero's journey to the big city back in the audience and on our stage. We love to see you and we can't wait to do it again. Keep on our website, sosawealonline.com. We will post the next opportunity to be on our Los Angeles show as soon as we know it. Also of note, the March San Diego Vamp Storytelling Showcase is on the theme of Code Switch, and the deadline to submit stories for that, maybe yours, we hope, is February 16th. And you can do that also right on our website, sosayweallonline.com. Just hit that submit button on the top and send us a story inspired by the theme. Don't overthink it. First drafts are all we consider them and are always welcome. And for today on this podcast, we have a wonderful family of stories to share with you from our January 2014th Vamps show, Are You Gonna Eat That? And starting us off today, our friend Leon Deckelbaum and his story, Coming Out of the Meat Locker. Here's Leo. In my life, I've had two big coming outs. My first coming out as gay was hard enough for my parents, but sucking a little dick can be understandable. (laughs) You could still date a doctor. (laughs) But turning down your grandmother's brisket because you're vegetarian? That was pure sacrilege. First of all, I want to explain what meat means to my family. My family was matzo ball soup and brisket Jewish. We were platters of pickles, whitefish, and corned beef after a bris Jewish. My dad's side was chased out of Russia. Mom's side survived the camps. Meat was a metaphor for the triumph of the Jewish people over all our suffering. We ate meat because Hitler would not want us to eat meat. (laughs) Every roast beef sandwich was a brick removed from an Auschwitz crematorium. The gravy-soaked turkey was a shield for our Russian ancestors against the pogroms. Every globule of fat dripping off the steaks was an opus praising the bravery of the Warsaw Ghetto. 
my family had a love affair with all things dead. <laughs> Cooked and served on a platter with a side of kogel because that is how we celebrated our survival. <laughs> Some of my earliest memories of my mother emerging from the kitchen asking, who wants to eat the pulky? My brothers would fight and snarl over the chicken's neck. I thought, ew, that's a chicken's neck. <laughs> Once I found a Jewish delicacy I thought I enjoyed, and after inhaling several kishkas with a mouth half full, I asked my mother, what is kishka? And I spat out the minced intestine. <laughs> See, Jews don't make things like meatloaf. And there's no Bubby's hamburger helper. That's what the guys do. There's no Yiddish word for spam. We have kishka and pulkis and schmaltz and fleisch and krebelach and kapikalach and anything you need a cold to say. We were also kosher. And if you don't know what kosher is, it's when God commanded Jews to only eat strange things. Like, <laughs> like fish with scales, and gills, and hoof mammals that regurgitate their food. And it, it meant when I did eat meat, it was always with my family and always in a very specific situation. The hardest part about being veggie was my dad was a butcher. <laughs> and so was his father's, who I'm named after. And if, if you visit DC, you'll find this. <laughs> so you can see how vegetarianism would be the worst kind of abomination in my family. Going into work with my dad didn't help either. I'm not gonna lie, I love the hamburger grinder. <laughs> but what boy doesn't love rampant destruction? No matter what you threw in there, hamburgers would squirt out. <laughs> but the rest of it, sorting chicken carcasses and tubs of bloody meat, left me gagging. I've also never really liked meat. A part of me just didn't get it. When I was a kid, I used to carve all the fat and gristle off the lamb chops, getting it down to one tiny bite, while everyone else slurped the marrow out of the bones. I asked my mother, Mommy, were these the same lambs we took photos with at the petting zoo? And she said, no, these are different lambs. But I was onto something. But it was kosher airplane meals that officially began my hate affair with meat. I remember being served after everyone else in the plane had received their delicious cuisine. Their food seemed gourmet compa by comparison. Yes, I was actually jealous of their airplane food. Then everyone would stare as they brought out our triple-wrapped kosher meal. Resurrected out of a deep storage from a Chabad house somewhere in Queens. It was a zombie meal that was summoned back to life. Soggy bread, plaster desserts, cardboard vegetables, and then the meat. Gray turkey lying half frozen in a pool of orange juice. 
I watched a woman next to me tear into her savory, fully cooked vegetarian entree and vowed never again to eat a kosher meal on a plane. The last time I ate chicken was at Kosher Delight, the McDonald's of kosher restaurants. Kosher and delight are two words that should never be used together. But I never got to eat fast food growing up. McDonald's, Wendy's, Taco Bell, all forbidden by Jewish law. This was as close as I was going to get to the delicious fast food that seemed so orgasmically happy in the commercials. I bit into the chicken nugget and found a chewy chunk of something. It was gummy and gristly, and I thought a, a beak, a foot, a deformed, underdeveloped chicken fetal twin. My mind raced, and then I remembered the pita sticker from college. I am not a nugget. Showing an adorable baby chicken, I thought, correct chick, you are not a nugget. And you are most certainly not a kosher chicken nugget. And that was the last time I ate poultry. And I realized that it was finally time to tell my parents the awful truth. It was time to come out of the meat locker. As a vegetarian. During my first coming out, when I told them I was gay, my mother didn't quite accept it. Don't worry, you'll meet a nice Jewish girl and have six babies and become a rabbi. It's been my dream my whole life. You were going to be the one. Similarly, when I told her I didn't eat meat, she explained that the chicken soup is vegetarian. Just fish out the chicken and the meat. Then she slowly moved on, as Jewish mothers do, to a subtle but reluctant acceptance. They were tried to appease me when I would visit them for holidays by explaining that we brought you something to eat. It's a kosher $13 vegetarian meal that was very expensive. <laughs> Massive family feasts would be prepared with chicken and brisket and steak and gravy and I would get my sad side salad. <laughs> Finally, they embraced it in their own way. My mother began making flavorless soups and vegetarian beef bean cholent. She learned foreign words like vegan. <laughs> they would take me to vegetarian restaurants and fake it. Mmm, it's just as good as kosher meat. Isn't that right, Norman? Norman, Norman, tell them it's delicious. <laughs> My father would nod, long ago robbed of his right to have a vocal opinion that didn't first emanate from her. <laughs> Nowadays, when we do get together, I know I'm missing out. I'll eat my sides while my relatives talk past me to ask my brother if he's met a girl on J-Date. <laughs> I shove my iceberg lettuce around and pretend it doesn't bother me, but it does. Part of the ritual of my family gets lost, but I also feel like I'm creating new ones in their wake. My mother has come a long way too. I'm bringing my boyfriend home in a few weeks and I think they're generally excited to meet him. I have a foolproof strategy all planned out. 
I told my parents that Jerry loves steak. And I promised him that my father makes the world's best T-bone. And I have a feeling everything's gonna go just fine. Because if there's one thing your meat-loving parents can bond with your gay boyfriend over, it's making fun of their weird vegetarian son. That was Leon Decklebaum. Next up, Phoenix Gomez performs her story, Maybe You Will Be a Good Omen for Me. If you plan it right, you can get to Oakland and back for $40. I've been doing it ever since I left there two years ago. I left after a bad breakup with my old living collective and came back to my hometown to lick my wounds and feel out more mainstream San Diego living. While there, I enjoyed being the most straight-laced of my group of friends. You know, the one with mild reservations about saving pee for the garden as a nitrogen additive. (laughs) Or the person who accidentally stumbles upon her housemates making floggers out of bike tubes. (laughs) And stays to watch. Still, after one house crisis too many, I moved south to reconsider my life and radical identity. Though that's not to say it's been an easy decision. Evidence of my ongoing struggle are the sporadic trips back. I go for two main reasons. It's a cheap vacation for a part-time preschool teacher, and to calm my I've sold out fears, mainly via my friend Elise. As an underemployed liberal Christian bartender, she's really great with empathy. I come up to smoke my annual cigarette with her and so we can laugh our way back from the edge. It's comforting, and afterwards, I feel it's possible that there's still some fight left in us. After another brief visit, the time had come to return to San Diego, and she was provisioning me for the 10-hour Megabus Greyhound journey. I'd lost my debit card before the trip and had been subsisting on a temporary one, which only worked on occasion. Mm -hmm. Along with it, I had a bag of stale peanuts, a few apples, and zero cash to get me through the voyage. In hopes of making it less of a slog, Elise was placing a parting gift in my hand. Remember, it's pretty potent. So you just want to eat a little bit. (laughs) Gotcha. Have a great trip. The pot rice crispy treat she passed over was not the first edible I'd ever had, or even had on an Oakland-San Diego bus trip. (laughs) The previous time had been lovely, dozing in and out of consciousness, munching ranch corn nuts, and quietly reading feminist sci-fi in a non-linear fashion. I don't identify as a partier, or as a pothead, really. Uh, Imbibing any mind-altering substance is something I generally prefer to do with friends. Most of my San Diego friends prefer not to imbibe, so it's a rare activity for me. I know just enough to not embarrass myself when the situations come up. I can suppress coughs. I know what bong water is. I don't bogart. It requires mental effort, though. I'm definitely decoding silently the entire time. Oh, right. We have smoked all the marijuana. Now it's all gray and fluffy. I know. It's cashed. She recommended a quarter of the crispy treat. I decided to be on the safer side and took just one small bite. I settled myself down with my duffel and purple backpack, and as the bus rumbled out, my brain turned off. (laughs) 
I woke up maybe an hour later, warm, relaxed, eyelids heavy. I could just barely feel my internal organs pushing on each other. I pulled out my journal and wrote some half-hearted poems about sunlight on grass. And closed my eyes and pushed on them to make designs. Each pothole, we passed over, it felt like jumping off a swing at the apex of its arc. The driver announced that we were about to stop for our half-hour lunch break and pulled into a jungle of semis and other megabuses and fast food and plastic packaging, a haze of fry smoke and gasoline permeating the air. Rising above it all, across the busy street, was the glowing white and yellow and green of a subway. I gazed at it looked at the labyrinth before me and looked back again. I can do this. I tucked my wallet in my pocket and lurched off on safari. I'm not sure how long it took me, but I remember triangulating frequently. The bus me, the subway, the bus me, the subway, the bus me, the subway. And eventually was able to shift those lines so that the subway and I were in the same place. <laughs> facing, facing the serpentine line of hungry bus passengers who had somehow managed to make it there before me. I felt triumphant. Neither the buzzing yellow lights nor the frantic movement of the subway workers' plastic-wrapped hands could foil me. Time cascaded by and I found myself at the front line, facing a volley of fast food questions. Game time. What kind of bread? Italian herb? Meat? Meatball? Cheese? Monterey Jack? Toasted? Of course, toppings? All the toppings? <laughs> return! 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 A sizzly, goopy food pile built out of their work and my will. I'm doing it! <laughs> then came the final gauntlet. Walking eyes with a bevisored cashier at the top of her lunch rush game, ready to complete the exchange of goods for money. And a question mark materialized in my head. Will my card work? I had money in the bank, but the caper depended upon one finicky temporary American Express. I passed it over and denied. Tried again, denied. Tried again, denied. Tried a puppy dog face. And watched them pull the sandwich into the back room. Each set of witnessing eyes bored little holes into my skin like so many magnifying glasses burning a not-so-innocent ant on a sunny day. I melted away from the accidental audience and went outside to regroup. Triangulating a new location was more than I could bear, so I decided to try my luck at the gas station right by the bus. Calcified corn dogs, hostess snowballs glowing pinkly, circus peanuts, nacho flavored combos. Food, pretending to be food, pretending to be food, meant to treat the symptoms of depression, but never the cause. A white half orb floated into view after the giant Slim Jims. Nong shim bowl noodle, sabor picante. I.e. the biggie-sized option of off-brand cupo noodles. The confusing combination of languages and MSG as well as $2 price tag was enticing and I caved. Time was of the essence, so I filled it from the hot water spigot on the coffee machine and slurped the, halty, the salty broth and long, long noodles as hot as I could stand them. Fortified, I returned to dozing, 
It didn't feel like failure at the time. <laughs> I awake some time later. Why is it so bumpy? I feel a slight telltale sweetness in my mouth and think again. I can do this. Will myself calm and take shallow breaths for the next two hours. My nausea mellows somewhat by the time Union Station comes into view, but my high does not. Everything is heavy and a light film of sweat seeps out over my eyebrows. Then I remember how far from over my trip is. <laughs> I still need to figure out how to get to Greyhound Station, 1.7 miles away. Walking, the original plan, is definitely out of the question. I wobble out and a solution materializes. Five solutions in the form of aggressively friendly taxi drivers. Taxis are technically out of my budget, but I figure I will make it work this time around. Then wonder if this is the kind of magical thinking about money that may have gotten me into the situation. <laughs> I pick the guy with the kindest face and slide in, closing the door behind me. He turns and smiles and says, you are my first customer ever. Maybe you will be good omen for me. my card will not work for him. How could it? Don't pin your dreams on me, dude. Not today. Today is not a day where the card would work for a kind and optimistic new taxi driver. The car smells of clean leather and new debt. <laughs> but how will I get to the station? I just smile and hope the betrayal isn't leaking out of my eyes. $25.50 later, we're there. My card is sweaty in my palm as I hand it over. He tries it, denied. Tries again, denied. I start blurting. I'm so sorry, you see my wallet fell out of my pocket as I was biking home and then I went to the bank and they gave me this card but I already scheduled this trip and I had to go and now the car only works when it's not important and I swear I'm not trying to cheat you, I swear, I swear. His eyes widen and I watch his world implode. I've made a terrible career decision. <laughs> My father, my father's right, people are swindlers, drunks, and addicts. <laughs> Would you give me your address? I promise I'll send you the money. I'm so, so sorry. Unbelievably, he does. And I leave him there to re-knit his worldview. <laughs> Once in, I see there's an ATM inside the station and heave toward it with a feeling that I imagine is not unlike a devout Catholic entering a confessional booth. The card works. Pray! you hated god of capitalism all shall love you in despair i rush back out and he's still there leaning head down against a sad polluted la palm the bills have been in my hand for less than a minute and they've already been crushed into moist little money sticks for a fraction of a second i think of just handing him a 20 then give him 40 two money sticks and hurry back in not sure what kind of omen i've become it feels like I'm made of some alien substance, wet clay or sawdust just soggy enough to hold shape. I squelch accordingly in the middle of a row of those bolted together seats, let my heart rate slow and assume the classic upright mouth breathing nap position. <laughs> Belly still a bit of gurgle and fade out. I wake with a jolt and look down the floor in front of me with a precise knowledge of what's about to happen. I'm about to puke. I'm going to puke. I'm going to puke. I'm, 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 I'm puking. I'm puking. I'm puking. I'm that puking girl in the Greyhound station. This is 
what it's like to be that greyhound girl in the greyhound station. <laughs> oh, noodles. <laughs> it remits, and I bolt for the bathroom. A guard is leading on the wall. Is leaning on the wall. You barfed over there. I'm so sorry. <laughs> The word echoes in my head as I tidily vomit into two trash cans on my way to the bathroom and slam into the thankfully empty stall to finally finish in the toilet. Thank God. Post-barf feels better, I observe, than pre-barf. So I take my time to enjoy it on the cool floor of the bathroom. The sensation of taking a full breath without fear of exhaling more than air. <laughs> I enjoy the luxury a little longer and then get up and wash my face and mouth. The barf on my identity is a little harder to reach, though I sop away what little I can. It occurs to me it's not necessarily compromising my values to not do marijuana or to not live in Oakland. Right now, I need San Diego. I need to sober up somewhere warm and dry. Yes, I need to get the weed out of my body, but my values also need some weeding. This bus will take me where I need to go. I come out, peek up remorsefully at the guard, and go to retrieve my bags. All that's left of the moment is a shiny just mop circle in front of my seat. <laughs> Not sure who to thank, I grab my bags, join the moving line, and get on. Phoenix Gomez. Third on the show today, Eliza Jane Schneider brings the meat with her story, Raw, Naked, and Entirely Uncivilized, Confessions of a Recovering Vegetarian. Here's Eliza. I was about five or six when I first discovered that I was an accomplice to murder. <laughs> It was my first and last fishing trip on the family pontoon boat in Minnesota. The loons were warbling their sweet song. The birch trees glowed white against the lush, verdant banks of the Mississippi River, and I watched in horror as my dad and two older brothers threaded their hooks with writhing earthworms and one by one jerked an unsuspecting northern pike out of his or her safe watery home onto the blue pontoon deck where each one flopped, gasped, choked, and died before my eyes. <laughs> I stared gate-mouthed at these murderers I called family. What's the matter with you people? My mom sat casually reading a book and smoking her cigarette while all this was going on, as though nothing was wrong, as though there wasn't a fish holocaust happening this very moment on her pleasure boat. So I picked up a fish, gouged out both its eyeballs, and proceeded to chase my family members about the boat with them. <laughs> crying out in my best zombie fish voice, you killed my mother. How could you do this to me? And my parents actually got mad at me for this. Why is it okay to torture and kill innocent creatures, skewering them alive under the false pretense of offering them a meal, but not okay to make puppets out of fish eyeballs? What kind of planet was I living in? From that day on, every time I ate my dad's yummy spaghetti with meat sauce or mouth-watering chicken tandoori or to-die-for oyster beef, 
I felt the guilt like a hook through my own mouth. Battleiza. Battleiza. And the betrayal. I would look down at the delectable morsels of dead cow on my plate and then look up at the faces of the killers I called parents. How could they have led me down this path? They're good people. I loved and admired them, and they betrayed me for my entire life. I tried to do the math in my little seven-year-old head, multiplying 365 dinners by seven years and trying to reconstruct the number of cows, chickens, pigs, fish, and bunnies I may have been responsible for killing. And worst of all, I found each and every one of the cute little suckers fucking delicious. My karmic debt was overwhelming, but the food was so good. When I had my own kids, I fumed. I would make sure meat never became their go-to comfort food as it was for me. I wanted to control my culinary destiny and surround myself with like-minded individuals who lived in humane harmony with the earth and all of her creatures. And one of the fucked up things about being seven is that you have no control over any of that. (laughs) Inspiration finally came to me in the form of the Swedish chef. Yes. Come up. He was the only chef I'd ever seen other than my dad, and from this I jumped to the conclusion that cooking was a guy thing. And I needed to rebel. So I would become a chef, despite the fact that I was a girl. And in total ignorance of the fact that many women happen to be chefs. But no matter. Finally, I would be in control of what I was eating. I saved my money from working at the children's zoo and local vet, cleaning up steamy white pit bull puke for $3.35 an hour, to buy vegetarian ingredients. Sometimes I even got my brothers to eat my chickpea curry instead of dad's meat entree and like it. Victory! (laughs) Once in college, like any good self-proclaimed vegan activist, I joined Greenpeace, People for Ethical Treatment of Animals, and I became the vegetarian chef at the UCLA co-op on Thursdays. (laughs) I figured if I made a meal so delicious that 200 meat eaters would willingly choose the vegetarian option that day, I'd earned myself a hamburger. holier-than-thou vegetarian vanity. This was about saving the world, one chicken at a time. I would go home for the holidays and shame eat my dad's turkey and then come back to school and try to make up for it with 300 of the world's best veggie burgers. But it wasn't enough to quiet the voice in my head that told me over and over again I was a fraud and a hypocrite and a murderer and didn't deserve friends. I had rejected the mainstream, but my guilty little secret kept me from getting close with the do-gooders I'd picked as my people. My vegan hubris hit its peak in 1993, when I was starring on a kids' show called Beekman's World. This was my opportunity to influence the hearts and minds of children in 60 countries and finally make up for all the animals I'd killed with my meat-loving ways. I insisted that my character only wear Converse high tops, no leather shoes, and I wrote to my little fans about the values of veganism. (laughs) I would start a children's vegan movement. (laughs) But with great power comes great responsibility. (laughs) 
in my megalomania, it occurred to me that I had to remove all temptation. Otherwise, 60 million children might discover what a hypocrite I was every time I swiped a piece of pot roast off the craft services table. <laughs> what about the paparazzi? That I didn't have yet, but maybe one day could. I had to become the vegan tank girl, so I dropped off the grid. I moved out of the co-op and into a converted ambulance. <laughs> where I attempted to surround myself with only humane products, biodegradable soaps and shampoos, toms of Maine toothpaste, and nut butter. But what about the leather upholstery and the fuel? No matter how hard I tried, I couldn't rid myself of the tarnish of so-called civilized society. I'd become a vegan obsessed, eating her own tail, and I missed the company of other humans. <laughs> Begging the goddess to imbue me with the powers of manifestation. Yes, there was a goddess now. I posted an index card on the Laurel Canyon Country Store billboard. Single white female looking for my own fully enclosed studio for $6.50 a month with parking in the canyon, attached to a house full of vegetarians with a cat I can play with but don't have to take care of. And a jacuzzi. A month later, I got the call. We saw your ad. We want you to come live with us. It was a very Mary Poppins meets Jane and Michael Banks moment. Certainly no one had actually seen the card I posted. Certainly such a dream pad didn't exist. I pulled up in front of the three-story marble mountaintop mansion covered in fairy tale vines on Wonderland Avenue. <laughs> I stood at the bottom of the stairs and was greeted by the looming figure of an impossibly skinny, impossibly tanned young man named Giuliano. <laughs> Welcome to the House of Raw, where raw is the law. <laughs> Wonderland is a lush and winding street in Laurel Canyon where both Jim Morrison and Charles Manson were said to have wreaked their respective brands of havoc. The place had history. I could only assume this lean fellow literally meant this was a place where they worshipped the ancient Egyptian sun god Ra. <laughs> I could get into that. But I was so very wrong. Turns out these people were not just vegetarians, not even vegans, no. They were raw, as in raw food. No meat in the house, no cheese. Never heat anything over 118 degrees, except, of course, marijuana. <laughs> None of them seemed to question the heating of process involved in producing the MDMA they swallowed on a weekly basis. But I guess those got a pass because they weren't technically food. In the House of Raw, no, not only was meat murder, but milk was pussy bovine hormone juice. You barbarian and cheese. Pussy congealed bovine hormone juice. And I bought into that philosophy hook, line, and sinker. Here, I could be part of the solution. Giuliano embodied my ideal, a man who lived the purity I wanted to achieve. Plus, it was a sweet pad. I drank the raw Kool-Aid. We did naked yoga on the roof. I bought the idea that guacamole in and of itself was a substantial dinner. But 
they never truly accepted me. Juliana would always say, Eliza lives in the lowest chakra of the house. <laughs> Meaning the red marble basement, because they knew I was still cooking downstairs in my walk. My veggie pad thai and cashew curry did not fly at the House of Raw. It was cooked. Dead food. I did yoga, but they were yogis and they considered me entirely uncivilized. I was sure it was clear to them that I was going through horrible withdrawal, wanting to kill everyone around me to substitute for the fish I wasn't eating. <laughs> I couldn't pretend I wasn't bothered now that the clothing optional but not encouraged jacuzzi was surrounded by a lush green bed of poison oak. <laughs> that the cat, so cute, pissed on everything. And that smell, combined with the popular stinky fruit and rotting food left sitting out on the countertops, sprouting day in and day out, mitigated any sense of fresh air the wooded canyon might afford. Then, just in case I had been too afraid to initiate the breakup myself, while I was balancing on the roof in downward-facing dog, reaching around to scratch the sunburned poison oak on my bare left butt cheek, with no sustenance in my bloodstream save sprouted seeds and a little residual THC, I looked across Wonderland Avenue and saw Giuliano being loaded into the back of a cop car. He was charged with having raped the teenage German model living in the indigo marble highest chakra of the house after providing her with ample cocaine. It occurred to me that these raw yogis might be projecting an outwardly pristine existence in that, that inversely reflected a deeply fucked up interior. I felt betrayed, disgusted, outraged, sick. I wanted to kill Giuliano with my small bare pacifist hands. I needed food. I cooked my first chicken breast in years that night, right in the house of raw. And it felt great. I realized in eating that chicken that I was satisfying my bloodlust for Giuliano. And suddenly my life of transgressions felt less heavy. I was able to forgive myself, accept my cravings as something other than imperfection, and move the fuck out of the house of raw. <laughs> These days I consider myself a recovering vegetarian. I try to eat a little more meat every day. Sometimes I fall off the wagon and go on a tofu bender. <laughs> But I've come to understand that the occasional free-range organic chicken is like my own personal Jesus, dying for my sins. I embrace my own dark side by ingesting it. The bloodier, the better. What completely tipped the meat scales was pregnancy. I craved blood of the animal like some sort of rotund, flesh-eating zombie. And I was okay with that. I kept enough lefty leanings to still opt for a natural childbirth, no drugs, no epidural, and by hour 21 of labor and hour three of pushing on an empty stomach, I knew I'd accepted how fully I am an omnivore. You are what you eat, and I was a hot, bloody mess. <laughs> My holistic all-natural midwife smiles at me near the end. Okay, sweetie, all you have to do now is push out the placenta and we're all done. I glare at her, starving, and push one last time. 
an otherworldly jellyfish of gore spills onto the bed, and I look her right in the eye and ask, are you gonna eat that? Eliza Jane Schneider. Fourth course today is our friend Carolyn Budd with her tale titled, Breathe. It was too good to be true. I knew it as soon as I saw it, but I couldn't resist. I pulled a dime out of my purse and set it down on the checkout desk at the Friends of the Library bookstore. At the very least, it would make a great gag gift. A retiree with Coke bottle glasses ambled up to the desk. Let's see what you got there. I showed him the book. Jumpstart your, meta- jump your metabolism. How to lose weight by changing the way you breathe. <laughs> he flipped through the pages and read off the back jacket. Take a deep breath and take off the weight. That's a good one. That's what I thought too. I had nothing to lose but 10 cents in my love handles, the belly fat I seem never to be able to shed. When I got home from the library, I placed the breathing book on a pile with others that sounded promising at the time. I knew it would be a while before I gave this one any attention, so to remind myself to breathe, I made a sign and posted it on the refrigerator. I wanted to remember to take big breaths, so I embellished the A. Perhaps I'd take a deep breath instead of opening the refrigerator door. Now, I'm one of those people who eat healthy, mostly organic, somewhat gluten-free, quasi-paleo. I'm the person who brings the raw, spiralized vegetable salad to the potluck. What keeps me from the reality of a flat stomach is I'm too lazy to do sit-ups. That, and a penchant for Haagen-Dazs chocolate peanut butter ice cream, dark chocolate candy bars, and freshly baked almond flour cookies. When I look back, it must have started the night I put that sign up on the refrigerator door. I started binging on strange things, things I don't normally eat. Dill pickles with almond butter. Celery dipped in hot sauce mixed with strawberry jam. My hands were moving faster than my brain could sort it out. While I've always been prone to couch potato snacking over bad reality TV, I don't typically eat handfuls of chocolate chips right out of the Costco bag. (laughs) The first night it happened, I thought it was a fluke. Maybe I was watching too many cooking shows. But after a few nights, I started getting worried. This had never happened before. I could not stop eating. I was consuming a week's worth of snacks in one sitting, force-feeding myself until my stomach hurt. I fantasized about geese and ducks raised for foie gras, (laughs) a tube crammed down their gullets for continual feeding. I wondered if my own liver was becoming grotesquely enlarged, that rather than being held captive by a poultry farmer, I was in some sort of a trance state. As soon as I finished dinner, I'd head for the refrigerator and start trolling. Apple slices with horseradish and feta cheese. Popcorn with sauerkraut, Greek olives with mint jelly. Whatever I could pull from old jars in the back of the refrigerator, I felt like a contestant on Chopped. (laughs) Except, instead of making something delectable from bizarre ingredients, 
I was just stuffing everything indiscriminately into my pie hole. There was a wildness to my pursuit of condiment jars, as if some unmet hunger had been unleashed. I felt frantic, gorging on flavors that cycled from sweet to salty to sour to sweet, flavors I could barely taste anymore. I worried I might be suffering from a nutritional deficiency. Maybe I needed more zinc. <laughs> Mostly, I just wanted more. It only happened when I was at home, not when I went out. But eventually, I would have to go home. Sometimes I didn't want to. I feared my metabolic scale had tipped. I wondered if I wasn't driven to eat by some emptiness I didn't want to acknowledge. I was too embarrassed to tell anyone. Yet there was a momentum happening, and it scared me. I was out of control, and I needed help. I found an Overeaters Anonymous meeting that met the next day. It was held in an industrial park off Mission Gorge Road. I'd never been to an OA meeting before, just Al-Anon decades ago, but I knew the drill. There were half a dozen people there, some fat, some thin, some normal. We had to go around the room and say our names and admit we had a problem. My name is Carolyn. I don't think I'm addicted. I just can't stop eating. <laughs> Everyone smiled and nodded their heads. They looked at me like I was one of them. But I didn't think I was one of them. I didn't want to be one of them. They seemed so tired and sad. I recited the list of foods I was binging on, and soon others recited their strategies for portion control. Eat only what fits on a salad plate. Don't eat after 7 p.m. Seek out a higher power. But I've always had trouble with the higher power part. A woman gave me her phone number and said I could call her at night. I could talk to her rather than raid the refrigerator. I could call her as long as I had Verizon so the minutes wouldn't count. <laughs> I had Verizon, but I never called. When I got home, I ate a three-pack of dark chocolate trade bars for chocolate bars from Trader Joe's. I think the binging had been going on for two weeks when out of desperation, I decided to seek professional help. I called my psychic astrologist in Lucadia, <laughs> Pam Crane. I see her every year on my birthday, and she always gets to the root of whatever is troubling me. Maybe some planet had gone retrograde. Maybe she could help me sort it out, see it in a different way. I wondered what my hands were so desperate to find. It wasn't about food. I just did it with food. I overfed myself because I needed something, and food was something I had plenty of. I went outside and stood in the backyard, the same backyard I've known since I was a little girl. I thought of holiday dinners growing up, the house packed with relatives, chairs pulled from every room to seat grown-ups at the dining table, while I sat with the other kids at card tables, our elbows poking each other. I remembered the bustle in the kitchen, mothers and aunts in aprons, spooning potatoes into serving bowls, ladling gravy into boats, aromas filling the house while we waited for the parade of food that filled everyone's belly with the promise of kinship. I thought of the people I loved who have passed on, how alone I felt in this house I inherited. I was lonely. 
I was still feeling bloated from my binge the night before when I placed my hands on my belly, the belly I will probably always have. I took in a deep breath of night air and felt my belly grow even larger. Then I let it go. I took in another deep breath, held it, then let it go. I kept breathing deeply until I felt remarkably calm. I thought of Tom Robbins' line, breathing's a great way to get stoned without the side effects. <laughs> I went back inside and was standing at the kitchen counter when something shifted in my awareness. I looked at the refrigerator. That's when I saw it. Right there in the middle of breathe, underlined, eat. <laughs> the A, the A embellished with an uvula like a gaping maw, monstrous, insatiable, greedy. The awareness hit me with a sharp intake of breath. How could I not have seen that? I pulled the sign off the refrigerator and felt an immediate sense of relief. I think it was possible that I was simply responding to a hidden message. Years ago, I had trained as a hypnotherapist but never pursued it. I guess I wasn't convinced that it really worked. Maybe this was my proof for the power of the subconscious mind. Still, there had to be more to it. We have to eat. We have to breathe. Yet the urgency I felt funneling food into my mouth made me wonder what it was I was really trying to fill up or what feelings I was trying to push down. I was eating food without feeling fed. I was breathing, but I was uninspired. I cleaned out the refrigerator. I tossed all the condiment jars past their expiration date. The refrigerator seemed empty. I felt a little sad. I wasn't so sure having a flat stomach would change that. When you feel empty inside, you want to fill it up fill it up with anything. I wondered, since I had been so entranced by the eat and breathe, what would happen if I put up another sign? It came to me somewhat quickly. Grateful. <laughs> I liked that eight was already in there. Past tense. I put an extra L on grateful to communicate to my subconscious mind that I was already full. <laughs> Then I, draw, I drew two little arrows on the feet of the L's so that maybe when I looked at it, my feet would walk right past that refrigerator door. <laughs> I went into the living room and turned off the TV. My television family on the Food Network wasn't doing it for me anymore. I decided to pick up that book on breathing. Maybe my belly just needed a little breathing room. <laughs> I didn't have a snack that night, but after a few bites, I was done. I still felt kind of lonely, but the binging, it ended just like that. Carolyn Budd. Fifth for you is the seaworthy Jenny Goff and her story, I Might Even Eat Those Doritos. Here's Jenny. It is August in the Sonoran Desert of Southern Arizona. I am working with a humanitarian aid organization, No More Deaths. I don't, 
I'd always been interested in border politics and wanted to ramp up my activism. So when Joe, a friend with lots of boyfriend potential, asked me to volunteer with him for a couple of weeks dropping water jugs and food on migrant trails, I figured, hey, I like to hike. I kind of know Spanish. If I get arrested, I mean, if I get arrested, I'll get activist street cred and totally piss off my mom. I'm in. We wait by the truck for our patrol leader, Lisa. Lisa's a self-proclaimed queer punk with a partially shaved head, black jeans, a ripped tank top, and lots of piercings. I like her immediately, but I'm also intimidated by her toughness. She has tattoos. I have freckles. She wears ragged patches secured with safety pins. I wear a $250 backpack from REI. She has been out here helping for months. It is only the end of my second week. Since day one, I have been trying to prove to my fellow volunteers, to the men passing through camp on their way north, and to myself that I am not just another privileged white girl from the city on a voluntourism jaunt into the desert. I am here to save lives. We drive to the starting point of our eight-mile hike and look for the trail travelers use to get through the valley. We don't call the folks crossing the desert and passing through camp illegals or aliens like Border Patrol. We call them travelers, and camp is just another stop on their journey. Our mission today is to mark the trails and drop off food and water for these travelers. We are in the gray area of legal. I am psyched to be pushing that boundary, to be doing something the Border Patrol would hate. I feel like part of an outlaw gang. <laughs> and I make sure I pack the heaviest bag to prove my dedication to the cause. We fan out to find the trail as it starts to rain. I pull out my jacket just as droplets of water become cold streams running down my face and back. We hike through pebbly riverbeds and pull choya cactus spines from our boots. We climb over barbed wire fences and chew the sweet pods we pull from mesquite trees. The trail gets steeper and we stop on a ridge high above two valleys. We eat in silence under bare branches, the early afternoon sun still obscured by thunderheads. It is cold and windy. I zip up my thin rain jacket and stare out at the rusted cans and plastic water bottles littering the sides of the trail. On my first hike two weeks ago, I had wanted to pick up all the trash I saw on the desert floor. The cans and bottles, the empty backpacks and disintegrating sandals and torn sweaters. I wanted to know the story behind each item, wanted to know who made it and who didn't. Accidentally stepping on a discarded backpack felt as sacrilegious as stepping on a grave. I spoon the last of my lunch into my mouth. Now instead of wanting to clean up the memories of others on this trail, I find the chaotic mess comforting. It means we're going the right way, that this path is being used that the cans of beans and jugs of water decorated with smiley faces and wishes of good luck will be found, used, and when discarded, will show other travelers the way. Our destination is Coyote Well. It is a little dot an inch from where we are on the ridge. How far can an inch be, right? <laughs> Lisa is confident we can make it there in two hours. I am doubtful. I had done parts of the same trail last week with another group and it took way longer than our estimates and we hadn't been depending on a truck to pick us up at our endpoint. 
I thought backtracking was the better, better option this late in the day, but I was hesitant to speak up. She's the young badass, and I'm, well, not. <laughs> so I don't want to be the old naysayer. Go team badass! <laughs> we hike down into the valley towards Coyote Well. Every hundred yards, we tie plastic ribbons to branches to mark the trail, replacing or supplementing the deteriorating bits of fabric travelers have used along the way. Lisa sees the other kind of marker first and points. Shit. We fall silent as we approach a rocky outcropping with a single mesquite. A dirty white bra has been strung up in the branches. My heart races as if we had actually come upon a woman lying in the sand. It's the second rape token we've seen this week. When a woman is raped in the desert, most likely by the man she paid to lead her to safety or by men she is traveling with, her bra is hung as a trophy above the spot where it happens. I am nauseous. Lisa gently untangles the fragile cotton straps from the branches. We buried under clay and jagged stones and continue to hike through the darkening hills. More cactus, more barbed wire, more discarded backpacks and blankets. As another downpour drenches our hair and clothes, we see the windmill marking Coyote Well ahead of us, but no truck. I am wet, hungry, dehydrated, exhausted, and now freezing. They ask me in how I am in that concerned, but trying not to freak out the victim voice. Um, so, um, your lips are kind of blue. Is that, like, normal for you? <laughs> Lisa is under an old windmill blade to avoid the rain, laughing about spiders, yelling at us that there's room for more. I want to scream at her, shut up, this isn't funny. You're leading people into the desert wilderness. This is not an Occupy march down Main Street. I want to be out of the rain too, but I need to be ready to intercept the truck on this road because I'm not sure the driver really knows where we are. Why isn't anyone else taking this seriously? I already told you, I can't feel my fingers. <sighs> Hours go by. It is pitch black, still no truck. Maybe it's not coming at all. When my stomach grumbles for the fifth time, I curse my underpacking of organic nut butter and am tempted to dig into the emergency food packs we carry in case we come across a traveler. Yep, I'm considering stealing from a migrant. Doritos, Cheerios, Fiber One Bar, Vienna sausages. Ugh. I question the nutritional value of what's in the pack. When you are running through the desert, have not eaten in days, and you just need calories to make it the next 17 miles to your pickup spot, I doubt a massaged kale salad would even be appealing. <laughs> and here I am, scoffing at Doritos. Food is food out here, and I feel like a bougie asshole for <laughs> even questioning the food choices this operation makes with its meager funding. I keep my bag of snack packs at my feet. I let my stomach grumble and handshake. I bite my lip and wait. An hour later, I see headlights through the juniper bushes. It's here, it's here! I yell to Lisa as I fling on my pack and run into the road. The truck is coming, and unlike the travelers, we want to be seen. We laugh and dance in the headlights as the truck rumbles to a stop. My lips are still blue, but now they are smiling, and I am shaking with relief instead of hypothermia. We pile into the cab, power up crumbling hillsides, and slide down muddy dirt roads and onto the highway. 
We passed through two checkpoints where we state our citizenship to men in drab green uniforms that look into this truck and see dirty punks and dykes and anarchists and one yuppie. <laughs> On the way back to camp, I dream of showers and sleep and milkshakes. I'm warm and safe and ready to leave the desert. But there are still dozens of travelers out there tonight, cold, wet, hungry, exhausted, and there is not a truck coming for them. I feel helpless, just as I imagine they might under this thick night sky. I want to give more. I want to leave hope in a world that is increasingly twisted and hopeless to me. But a snack pack and a jug of water that says buena suerte, smiley face, will have to do for now. Jenny Goff. And next we have the golden boy of the episode, the pure-hearted Gary Gould and his story, A Spoonful of Asparagus. I alternated mouthfuls of marinara slathered noodles and chunks of butter-soaked garlic bread, pausing only to breathe and swallow root beer. I wiped pasta sauce off my pimples with the back of my hand. When my plate was empty, I raced back to the kitchen for more. I piled layers of Parmesan on my little pasta mountain, grabbed another half-moon slice of bread, and snubbed the stainless steel bowl of vegetables. This was a high school swim team pasta feed. The stated purpose of which was to give the team a chance to carbo-load before a swim meet. Eating mounds of starch supposedly translated into a surplus of energy the next day. Who knew if this idea was in fact nutritionally or scientifically sound? But 15-year-old me never said no to all-you-can-eat pasta. (laughs) This was not gluttony. This was for the sport. (laughs) Across the table from me sat Stefan, a junior, and Matt, a senior. I, a mere freshman, felt minuscule next to them. I wore size 30 pants with a belt and weighed 140 pounds after a large meal. I had scrawny arms and legs and my chest was essentially all skeleton. Meanwhile, they filled out their bright yellow warm-ups with broad shoulders and hefty triceps. The yellows were the traditional team outfit of the day before a meet. I wore the same thing. We were three bananas sitting at a table. My swimming ability had earned me a spot on varsity. I would swam most of my life. It was my sport. There were permanent rings around my eyes from where my goggles pressed against my face. And in PE, I made the gym smell like chlorine when I sweat. I was dedicated and I was fast. But all that time in the pool hadn't prepared me for an entirely new challenge, the team part. On the team, there were other measures of worth besides speed. For example, Stefan led the team in singing rounds of row, row, row your boat in the showers after each morning practice. The echoing of voices off tile somehow made waking up at such ungodly hours bearable. Matt told stories of sneaking onto the roof of the pool and showed us how to shave with a pink razor borrowed from his mom (laughs) because those cheap two-blade disposable razors cut the skin. I sat near these two legends, shoveling pasta and not saying much. So far, all I'd done on the swim team was put my head down and swim. 
I didn't feel worthy to sit with them. I was still waiting for some way to be more than the time on a stopwatch. Matt put his fork down and scratched at the thin stubble under his chin. He cleared his throat. So, I am going to light my pee on fire. (laughs) A lump of half-chewed spaghetti fell out of my mouth. It was a ludicrous proposal coming from a guy who not only had above a 4.0, but could also, more importantly, grow a beard. I was intrigued. He stabbed a spear of asparagus off his plate and popped it into his mouth. I've been reading that if you eat enough asparagus, your pee is flammable. I wiped my mouth with my sleeve. I reasoned that if there were a chance that the human body did, in fact, create a flammable compound as a result of asparagus consumption, it would be heavily diluted by the amount of water present in pee, and therefore the pee itself would not be flammable. My reasoning seemed sound. I don't believe it, I said. But as the words left my mouth, I thought, what if? (laughs) Stefan examined the asparagus on the end of his fork with a newfound curiosity. I just know that it makes your pee smell funny if you eat a lot, he said. The idea sounded impossible, but Matt himself, swim team elder, was saying that it would work. (laughs) Stefan raised his voice. Here, Matt, have some more water. Some of the team turned and gave our table a curious look. Stefan stood facing the entire living room. Your attention, please. (laughs) Nobody else eat the asparagus. Matt needs it to light his pee on fire. The remainder of the asparagus in the room was consolidated onto Matt's plate. No one questioned it. Matt poked at the stack of green and smiled. A crowd of greasy-faced swimmers watched him eat. Wait, Stefan held up a finger. Won't it take a long time for that asparagus to enter your system and turn into pee? Aha, my good man. Matt's face lit up as if he had been anticipating such doubts. I've been eating asparagus for dinner all week and finishing the leftovers at lunch. I chimed in. Your mom must be sick of making it. My lingering skepticism garnered a disapproving look from Stefan. On the contrary, Matt raised his eyebrows. She's happy I'm eating my greens. He was making short work of the cut-up spears on his plate and washing them down with plenty of water. His confidence was unfaltering. Perhaps it was possible for a man to light his pee on fire. Who knew if this idea was in fact nutritionally or scientifically sound, but I had to admit that it was freaking awesome. A feeling of anticipation hung in the air, mingling with chlorine and meat sauce. Matt happily ate on. Drink soda, you'll pee faster, I said. I moved a two-liter bottle of A&W closer to him. If this was happening, I wanted to be part of it. (laughs) Stefan put a supportive hand on Matt's shoulder. And don't pee until you think you have to go a lot. The lighting of the pee had now become a team effort. Only Matt could create the flaming pee, but we'd support him in any way possible. 
Stefan went and conferred with his mother about how to best carry out our experiment. I knew she'd let us do it because she was a cool mom. At her last pasta feed, she gave us fireworks and turned us loose in the street. So she should have been okay with a controlled burn, even if it was urine-based. She burst into a smile while Stefan explained the situation. Gentlemen, the time has come. Matt rose and went into the bathroom to prepare the sample. Boys, Stefan's mom held up a hand and paused. Just don't make a mess. The team, wearing their warm-ups, gathered in the driveway in a yellow pack. Stefan came out, followed by Matt, who held a floral-patterned mason jar filled to the brim with pale yellow piss. I thought, were we even allowed to do this? Shouldn't we be back inside, staying off our feet and packing a few more calories into our gullets? I started to think about the meat the next day, but forgot it. Right now, it was just us and the pee. Matt lowered the pee to the ground, as one would set a precious artifact on an altar. Solemnly, he held up a red-handled lighter and clicked the trigger. Stefan started a slow clap, and in the spirit of the moment, everyone followed. He looked at me, eyes wide, nodding, indicating that I should join in. My last skepticism melted away and I put my hands together. I was implicated in the lighting. It was like Tinkerbell. <laughs> Clap my hands and the flame would spring to life. <laughs> Matt lowered the flame to the surface of the liquid and paused. Everyone was quiet. He touched the lighter to the pea and stepped back. A soft blue flame sprouted from the top of the mason jar. My mouth dropped. I heard squeals of disbelief as people jumped into the air and ran around the driveway. Stefan claps. Huzzah! We became a tribe possessed. Dancing around the flaming mason jar, I fist bumped, I chest bumped, I high fived. Matt was looking up at the sky, both hands raised in victory. I slapped him on the back and congratulated him on the flammable miracle his body had produced. And you thought it couldn't be done! Matt poked his finger in my chest. I had to admit that he was right, that before my eyes, the impossible had become possible. The flames burned gallantly in the twilight, like the torch at the Olympic Games. Like a monument to swim teams past and those to come. An eternal flame, a symbol of camaraderie, and asparagus. As I watched the pee burn in the driveway, my shock slowly turned into a sense of accomplishment. I turned to Stefan. Dude, we totally lit Matt's pee on fire. One year later, I was at Apostrophe trying to think of a team bonding activity when I remembered. Hey, Stefan, I said, remember when Matt ate all that asparagus and lit his pee on fire? <laughs> Stefan gave me a concerned look. And then all the little details came together. 
the way Matt and Stefan had pushed lighting the pee from the beginning. <laughs> Stefan's mom laughing in the kitchen. The very large mason jar filled right to the top. <laughs> Stefan laughed, and the rest of the team joined in, knowing the one thing that I hadn't figured out after all this time. There was lighter fluid in the pee. <laughs> That was Gary Gould. And last, but perhaps most precious to us at So Say We All, Ms. Nancy Carey brings us to a close with her story. You're going to choke on that. Here's Nancy. I'm a Nebraska transplant. My dad brought us out to the Bay Area, along with his hunting rifles, taxidermied pheasants in flight, and more than a taste for scotch all of which ended up decorating our kitchen walls. <laughs> By the time I was in high school, I didn't notice the guns, rack, gun racks against the wallpaper or dusty pheasants nailed behind the TV in the corner. But I knew we were different. My friends' kitchens had ceramic seagulls and sunburst clocks on walls. We had guns. Their moms called them in for dinner around 5.30 after their dads got home. We never ate until after 7. My dad was still at the office, which was code for he's at the bar. <laughs> Once home, dad got a few more belts of scotch behind him. I steered clear, but listened from the living room. Dad blowing off steam about new social medicine, those goddamn liberals in Berkeley, <laughs> the orchards coming down right where we live and all these fences going up. He'd raise his hand in a toast once we were all seated. To Montana, we'll have a ranch. I'll have a horse. He only ever mentioned Montana when he was drunk. Seven nights a week, our family would sit around the table, never acknowledging the liquor-soaked elephant, my father's alcoholism. But I had a secret, too. I hid my food. Not in the way you think. I hated grisly meat, stringy vegetables. I'd chew and grind. I'd get it into a gray wad like a piece of chewing gum and then hide it, slide gobs under the plate rim. Sometimes I'd spit into a napkin or drop it on the floor to the dog. I wasn't anorexic or bulimic. I was driven by a desire to regulate my feelings, a desire to contr gain control, to survive life with my family. And I did it with food. I was old enough to know my father was an unhappy man. He was a drinker, but he still got up in the morning and went to work. My mom wasn't saying he needed to get help. I'd heard the stories about him growing up poor and his dad, a drinker, who lost the farm, had left the family. But my dad, he'd made something of himself. I felt sorry for him. And he always told us he loved us. He'd hold my hand and call me Nancy with a laughing face. It was a line from a Sinatra song he loved and named me after, and I loved him. 
As a teen, I was still short and on the thin side. My best friends had sprouted up to like five feet six before they even got into high school. <laughs> I looked like their little sister. <laughs> but in high school, my dad made me feel like a beautiful young woman, full of promise. He showed up to watch me in school plays. He helped me apply to colleges. He escorted me to the father-daughter dinner. But at home, I dreaded dinner. Watching him drink, his swollen eyes. He got mean with my brother. At night, I worried he might not make it home from the bar. And what if this caused my parents to get a divorce? I hid in my bed, but at dinner, I couldn't hide. We had to be in our seats to play our roles. I became the listener, the food hider. The menu in our house was by the book. Wednesday night, Swiss steak, Thursday night, spaghetti, Friday night, fish, and Saturday, fun tacos. <laughs> it's Wednesday night. And moms pounded down the economy-sized package of round steak to punctured patties. She's rolled and pinned triangles of raw meat with toothpicks. She's plated it from her electric frying pan. My brothers already have their hands on their knives, ready to dig into meat. Opening a napkin in my lap, I stare at the butter pooled in the center of the mashed potatoes. My brother Steve is sitting next to me, hiding his eyes with his long, dark hair. He looked athletic and hipster at the same time. He was the anti-bullshitter in our family. He could see through the lies and call people out, including my folks. Steve says, tryouts are Friday. This year, he'd be on varsity. But I'm not going out. He flips his hair back. And I'm not cutting it for baseball. Yes, you are, my dad said. He stares down at my mom, not even looking at my brother. You'll get your hair cut, and you'll be on that field Friday. Or you can forget about guitar lessons. I have a mouthful of stringy, tough green beans that I've been sliding cheek to cheek. I'm afraid to swallow and choke on the net of fiber I pull out some with my finger and slide the gray matted clump under the rim of the plastic dinner plate. My dad throws back his drink. I fork a piece of meat and search for a way to change the subject. The coach is an ass, my brother says. Swearing offended my Roman Catholic mom, but I don't think it even fazed dad. He swore when he drank. Swearing was a release, better than breathing. Heck, we all swore, except for mom, swearing was sinning. For dad, not playing sports was sinning. <laughs> Florence, let him think about it, my mom says. I don't need to think about it. You can't make me, my brother says. I push a few pieces off the plate. I take one bite, just trying to look like I'm eating. Dad gets up from the table, grabs my brother by the scruff of his neck, and pushes him toward the door. Get out of here, you little shit. He heaves his drink at my brother. The glass glances off the top of my brother's shoulder, soaks some of his gray sweatshirt, hits the wall not far from the gun case, and crashes to the floor. 
I'm selling the guitars. The front door slams. Dad goes to the door and latches the chain lock. Goddamn Beatles, goddamn hippies, he says to himself. He hurries back toward the fridge with his shoulders raised in kind of a take charge way. All of a sudden, alive. We hear ice cracking. I still have meat in my cheek pocket. My mouth is dry. I wipe it with my napkin. No one's looking at me. I sweep the napkin under the plate and grab the chewed food, scrunch it in a napkin, and hold it in my lap. I can feel its dampness, its weight, like a little animal, a pet. My mom motions, we need to just keep eating. Out of the window behind me, I hear shuffling in the garage. Through the gap in the cafe curtains, I can see the garage doors up. My brother moves past. There's a crash of glass at the front door. I see the frosted shards of the top half of the door bounce into the front hallway, and I can hear heavy thudding against the wood door frame. My mom gets up. Stop! Stop! What will the neighbors think? I'm standing, pulling back my younger brother to stay put. Dad sets his drink on the table. His head's cocked. He looks unsure, almost afraid, like he's been here before. And then silence. There's the hollow sound of a bat bouncing off concrete as it lands. I peer out the cafe curtains. My brother's running down the street. The bat is rolling slowly on the driveway. My brother Steve didn't come home for three days. He stayed away, hid for a day at a girlfriend's, another night at a friend's. Mom was so freaked she didn't cook dinner. No spaghetti, no fish, no fun tacos. My younger brother and I played detectives, rode our bikes around, asked Steve's friends if they'd seen him. Just like Steve and I would search for our dad at bars. Dad went to work, came home, and drank. Sunday night, I hear something tapping at the window. It was Steve. Is mom okay? I unhinge the screen and help pull him across the aluminum frame. He's still pissed, but came back for us kids, too. He wanted us to do something about dad. He slept on my rug, my bathrobe over his shoulders. I hid him in the bedroom until dad left in the morning. Steve told mom he didn't go out to tryouts. He wouldn't make the team. Later that morning, mom drove us to school, wrote a note with a fake reason why we were late. She was getting good at white lies. And then mom resumed her schedule. Monday nights were ham loaf. Everyone's wondering if Steve and dad are gonna come to blows again, like two dogs bleeding and whimpering after a fight. The conversations focused on the rest of us, my mom making some small talk that doesn't make sense. Dad kept drinking, that's what drinkers do. I was already chewing on a chunk of ham loaf and planning the best way to drop it in the paper napkin. There was a sense that things had changed, maybe for the worse, but for now, we were together, seated at our places at the table. Nancy Perry, everybody.
And that concludes this episode of the Vamp Storytelling Podcast, Are You Gonna Eat That? Recorded at our beloved Whistle Stop in South Park, San Diego, back in January of 2014. Your storytellers were Leon Deckelbaum, Phoenix Gomez, Eliza Jane Schneider, Carolyn Budd, Jenny Goff, Gary Gould, and so say we all's beloved mom, then and forever, Nancy Carey. Make sure you subscribe to the Vamp Storytelling Podcast if you have not already. And if you would, please do leave us a rating and a review. It magically brings more people into our flock. If you want to learn more about So Say We All, including how to get in touch, upcoming live shows you can be a part of, and more, pop over to our website, sosayweallonline.com. The Vamp Storytelling Podcast is produced by myself, Justin Hudnall, Jennifer Corley is Sosia Wales Program Director, Joe Hudak is our Production Manager, and Brent Hanafy is our Social Media Manager. Our original music is provided by the hauntingly beautiful Kurt Conan of AMFM Music, a man for all ages, if I do say so myself. His beard and his hair constantly make me consider Rogaine. And our outro music was gifted to us by 1032, titled Blue Little. Support is made possible by the California Arts Council, the San Diego Commission for Arts and Culture, the Conrad Prebis Foundation, and the supporting members of So Say We All. Wouldn't you want to be one of those members? Well, we sure would love it if you would. Just go to our website at sosayweallonline.com slash support and sign up at any level of monthly giving, and we will shower you with reciprocating gifts of affection and super parties and belly rubs, whatever you want, really, in return. Thanks so much for listening. Don't be a stranger. Let's talk again soon. Mwah.